Morning, glory and evening, grace. America is that last hour of the radio week, and it is always the Hillsdale Hour. Just today, it is the second hour of the Hillsdale Hour. Since last week was July the 4th, we did not have an opportunity to do our Hillsdale Dialogue with Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College and or one of his colleagues. And you can read all of the Hillsdale Dialogues at hughforhillsdale.com. Listen to them. The transcripts are over at hughhewitt.com and hillsdale.edu is where you find all of the wonderful online courses and your opportunity to subscribe for free to all of them, as well as the Speech Digest in Primus. Uh, Where we left off, uh, Dr. Arn uh, and and Professor Gaetano, was Leo X. And I'm I'm wondering if there's a personality there like George III or many others who did not see revolution coming. What is it about that? that, that Obviously, we don't know which revolutions were avoided by statesmen-like action, or maybe we do if you look at Washington. But what's the error that is made there in misjudging combustibility, Larry Art? Well, that's it is just like George the Third, right? He uh, George the Third wrote the letter in 1776 that kept Washington's army together, and it was a letter intended to recruit the army to his cause. Huh. His misunderstanding was so great of what was thought over here. And, you know, this revolution that Luther sparked went way beyond what Luther anticipated, Mm. too, as Matthew said at the beginning, right? In other words, it touched a nerve. And I I don't think either Luther or Pope Leo understood how much it would do that. Uh, And and Matthew Gaetano, when Luther got going like a snowball going down the hill, he seems to gather force and fury— I mean, that is the one thing. I've, I've been around Luther a little bit, not much. If you go to parochial schools, you don't hear much about him at all, and then you have to kind of catch up later. And he's marvelously entertaining, and I want to talk about the problems with Luther and the anti-Semitism and, and the German side of it as well. But he does gather great force and fury as he rolls along. He, he is a fiery figure. And, and I think that that aspect where you do have – this self-image that he has of himself, you know, of himself as a prophet uh, of the last days, fighting the devil, fighting Antichrist. You know, that's a, that's a pretty, uh, uh, very deeply uh, troubling sense of oneself, where you know, you, 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 it's hard to compromise with the devil, and and you know, from the outside, people saw him, as I said before, as Hercules, but that's not how he saw, as he saw himself, and and and. You could just see how badly handled all of this was because everyone's looking for something different. I mean, the the best story about Leo X is when Exerge Domine, uh, which is the document that promises the excommunication of Luther if he doesn't recant, uh, which comes out in June June 1520, that when this is being put together, uh, we have this son of Lorenzo de' Medici, uh, Leo X, uh, hunting wild boar. You know, so it, it, he does. He doesn't have his. He's not as focused on this figure, this 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 theologian who ends up being a, you know, a giant figure. I mean, we, it's hard to exaggerate not only the significance of this man, but even in his own life, how prolific he was. The Weimar edition of Luther's writings. I mean, this is the energy of this man. You know, fill one hundred and twenty-one volumes, eighty thousand pages that this man. Uh, this man wrote. He translated the New Testament in a matter of weeks. I mean, this this is one of these really kind of world historical, energetic figures who sees himself as a prophet. Other people see him as Hercules. It's it's really hard to uh, capture 
a, a, a man like Martin Luther. He's just a really incredibly dynamic figure. He also sets loose in the world, though, the idea that you can be your own judge. And you just made me think of John Brown. And, I, and perhaps two years ago, I read a new biography of John Brown, and I never much paid much attention to him. But he, he viewed himself as a prophet. He viewed himself as a radical. And he was empowering of himself by virtue of his own resort to Scripture, which is what Luther let loose in the world, right? No, nobody gets to check you. You get to read the Bible and decide if you are a prophet or a king or a, an emancipator. And, and when you look at the image of Martin Luther in the Enlightenment in the 19th and 20th centuries, that's absolutely correct that people say, well, if Luther could do it, we can extend his Reformation further, not only in transforming the church, but transforming the world. And, and Luther almost immediately has to tell these you know, peasants who, who revolt right away that they have completely misunderstood what he's trying to do. That, for again, for Luther himself, he says, I am a trained theologian. I am a professor of theology. I'm a priest of the, of the church. And that gives me a kind of authority to interpret scripture that not every, you know, peasant and, and uh, you know, bourgeois Joe uh, has. Too late. Uh, Too late. Uh, And I got to ask uh, Dr. Arndt, since you are the Lincoln scholar, what did Lincoln think of John Brown? Uh, Too radical. Um, You know, Lincoln, he, 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 John Brown helped provoke the war and Lincoln tried very hard to prevent it. And uh, John, he thought that John Brown was guilty. Such people were guilty of uh, forgetting that we have to live under the law. And if we don't have the law, we're done. And uh, uh, and so this idea that I'm a prophet and I can go and use violence uh, on my own initiative, and that's not what Luther proposed at all. So yeah, and you know, I so I have to tell an anecdote about Luther. It's questionable because I can't find the letter, but I'll, I'll look it up and if, I'll apologize on the air if it doesn't exist. But years ago, Doug Jeffrey, my colleague, who's a Lutheran. And also, it's important to understand, has an advanced degree in beer making. <laughs> of course he's a Lutheran, then. <laughs> Sent me a copy of a letter that Luther wrote from the Diet of Worms, which has got to be the greatest named conference in human history. <laughs> and, and the letter says, in paraphrase, and I haven't read it for years, I confess, I could have spent all my days over there devastating with my arguments, but I preferred to stay over here and drink beer and let the, and let the Lord do it. Which is a kind of commentary on faith and works. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Now, this brings me – I got so out of, out of joint here at the beginning. We haven't given our poor Pittsburgh Steelers fans the least idea of, of the life <laughs> of Luther. And, and we don't they, – we're talking about this man, and they drive by church's name for him. I think the only denomination out there that is that way, correct? And, and, and there have been movies made about him, and there's this tremendous controversy about him. West but he, he, why don't you, uh, Professor Gaetano, sort of set up who he is, where he came from, and how he ended up setting the world on fire? Yeah, he certainly had humble beginnings. You know, 1483, Luther's born in a town, Eisleben. His father's a kind of middle-class figure involved in coal mining. Uh, and you know, Luther was given, you know, because of this middle-class background, a, a decent education um, and was training to become a lawyer, which was, you know, the next step up the ladder from his father's point of view. And when he was uh, coming home from uh, from finishing up part of his degree at Erfurt, which is one of the early German universities, 
he is a, uh, afraid of being struck by lightning and says to Saint Anne, who's the traditional mother of, of, of Mary, the, uh, that he would become a monk if he was saved from the storm. And he was uh, saved uh, from the storm and uh, joined this very radical, uh, and when I say radical, I mean very observant, very uh, reformed Augustinian friary. Uh, and what are the Augustinians known for? Are they obviously they're devoted to the work of Augustine, but but what's their rule? In fact, the Augustinians you know come together. They're they're actually called the Augustinian hermits because early on in the 13th century, early 13th century, there were all of these hermits who were causing certain problems for the church because they the church wanted some organization, some go to people if there's any problems, and so gathered together all of these. Uh, uh, hermits together and other other monks and put them under the Augustinian rule, which is a pretty standard rule. Even the, D- the Dominicans, the, the more famous order, have a modified Augustinian rule. And that was really the only reason they were called Augustinians until eventually they really did become devoted to the doctor of grace, uh, St. Augustine, uh, in part because, you know, I'm oversimplifying slightly, you know, that the Franciscans had Francis and Bonaventure and eventually Scotus. Oh, no kidding. The, the, they didn't start out to be Augustinians. They just ended up there. That's that's absolutely right. In huh. the beginning, it was the rule. The rule started it. And then eventually they became deeply devoted to the works of St. Augustine. That's all medieval theologians were, but they had a special, special devotion to his writings. And by the time Luther is joining up, that, that was well established. Now, Dr. Arn, before we go to break, when I say Luther, do you think, Aristotelian, or do you think anti-Aristotelian? Uh, anti, but uh, Matthew tells me that there's more than one side of that story. Well, because I, in my reading, I got both sides, and so I thought I would ask you. So you don't. So Doctor uh, Art has no opinion on that question. No, I I, I think it's ambivalent. Oh, well, we'll be right back to discuss what that means. Don't go anywhere, America. It's the hour of Luther. Actually, it's the second hour of Luther. In the Hillsdale Dialogues, all of the Hillsdale Dialogues are available at hugh4hillsdale.com. And Hillsdale College, the remarkable institution it is, uh, all of its free online courses available at hillsdale.edu. Stay tuned. 21 minutes after the Hour America, it's Hugh Hewitt. Thank you so much for listening on this Friday. It's the Hour of Hillsdale, the Hillsdale Dialogue, named for the Hillsdale College, hillsdale.edu. I'm joined by Dr. Larry Arn, as I am most weeks, and this week his colleague, Professor Matthew Gaetano, who also teaches the online Western Civilization lectures on the Renaissance Reformation and Counter-Reformation. When we went to break, uh, Dr. Arn, I'd asked you about Aristotle, and you said Matthew has a different view on this. And so I bring it up only because if folks have been dutifully listening to the Hillsdale Dialogues week after week, they will have known that Aquinas was the great reintroducer of Aristotle, and obviously a few hundred years later comes Luther, and he's going to know what Aquinas, the great doctor, has written and said, and he's going to have to have an opinion on him, won't he, Matthew Gaetano? Absolutely, and uh, Luther, after uh, he joins the Augustinians, is recognized for his gifts as a student, and is, is moved very quickly through his theology training. He receives his degree uh, quite early in his life, much earlier than typical theologians of his time because of his of his brilliance as a theologian. And if you're training to be a theologian in the 15-teens, you're reading Aristotle. And uh, part of what made Luther famous uh, before, uh, you know, the 95 Theses and, and, and so on and so forth was he was seen to be 
a, a, another university reformer along the lines of, of an Erasmus. Wittenberg was a young university. It was only founded in 1502. It's under 20 years old. Oh, I didn't know Luther's that. Teaching. It's, it's a huh. very new uh, university. And, and Luther really is trying to put in more Latin literature. You know, along this the humanist lines, and he doesn't want excessive commentaries and logic chopping that he saw as as typical of the scholastics. And then in 1520, so just around the time when he's being condemned, he does say the universities need to re be reformed by the German nobility. They need to get rid of Aristotle's physics and metaphysics. This is a waste of time. But you know, even then, even in one of his most radical points, he says we really need to preserve. Aristotle's ethics, uh, excuse me, not Aristotle's ethics, Aristotle's logic and Aristotle's uh, poetics and his rhetoric, that those are really valuable writings. What he was really disturbed by, uh, it was the way in which Christian theologians looked to Aristotle's ethics, which is all about how one can, you know, through virtue, secure happiness. And Luther, because of his profound sense of human sinfulness, thought, why are we concerning ourselves with what some pagan pig, which he is said to have uh, written about Aristotle at one time, what does a pagan pig have to know about happiness when we know what happiness really is, which is uh, the heaven that is secured by Christ uh, through, through his grace? And now, so it's really to, the I, ethics that disturbed him. I am astonished at the presumption. I, I, I know I've known a lot of PhDs, so I've known some people who are pretty presumptuous, but I also know a lot of humble PhDs. He takes on the Pope. He takes on Aristotle. He, he, he yeah. instructs the German nobility. If you want to criticize Luther, <laughs> Luther let me let First of all, the ethics is the place where Aristotle most definitely speaks of the immortality of the soul. He says in the ethics that we care about our children and our grandchildren and maybe our great-grandchildren intensely after death, maybe not others so much. And this does, by the way, seem to me, the things he wrote about the ethics, they seem to me arrogant. He says that, uh, I didn't know this until I read Matthew's thing this point, but he says that he understands Aristotle better than Aquinas did. Wowie. Huh. <laughs> but, but then, uh, but then he, I, in my opinion, he doesn't. Uh, Aristotle's account of the human being begins by what you can see. And here's what you can see, he says. You can see that we're animals and that we die and live like animals, live and die like animals. And you can see that we are possessed of an immortal soul, capable, capable of grasping the eternal. And so why would such a soul be in such a body? He understands the two to be an integrity. And then he says, since nature, nature makes nothing in vain, it's hard to think that the soul would be given these capacities and then perish as in a non-rational being. So Aristotle's account of all that, in my opinion, is beautiful and powerful and innovative. But then second, it has been picked up by what I regard as the greatest Christian writers on this point and reconciled because obviously there's a puzzlement in the middle of Aristotle. He's not asserting he knows everything. And so Thomas Aquinas' treatment of all that is these things that Aristotle says are true and perfect knowledge of such things to which Aristotle does not pretend would only come from the knowledge that's given us by God. And that seems to me like, first of all, a truer and second of all, a more defensible position than Luther's is. 
But Matthew knows more about this than I do, and he writes that, that Luther's friend Melanchthon was a great Aristotelian, and Luther did something more than abide that. Maybe you speak to that, Matthew. That's right. Philip Melanchthon was called the Praeceptor Germaniae in the decades after uh, his death. Philip Melanchthon was the young man, and Praeceptor Germaniae, he's the teacher of Germany, that he was seen to be one of the great educators of his time, and, and Luther was was present at the University of Wittenberg while Melanchthon was commenting upon and using many of the texts of Aristotle of Aristotle in the classroom. And so, you know, to see Luther in this early moment, who, yes, does say Luther is a rascally heathen, that God sent Aristotle as a plague upon us Christians for our sins. But in the decades after this kind of critical early moment, Luther was willing, and he saw just that Luther, if you want to give students in 15, the 15, in 1530 a good education, they're going to need to read a lot of Aristotle. And I think Melanchthon certainly understood that, uh, evidenced by how much he commented upon and, and lectured on Aristotle. But I think Luther certainly had to have not been all that opposed to it if, as the great figure in Wittenberg, he saw this happen, he let it happen, and, and he remained a great, uh, he was de- deeply, almost reverenced Melanchthon, saying, he wrote one of the best books that's ever been written, which is uh, Melanchthon's great theological treatise, the Loci Communes. Well, this is going to provoke uh, a lot of email from my Lutheran friends, but it seems to me Thomas Aquinas ended his life, as people who listen to that dialogue will know, saying it's all straw, and he stopped writing, and that Luther ends his life getting bigger and bigger in his pronouncements, and that I am suspicious of that, Matthew Gaetano, that, that it seems to me... More knowledge would make you more humble, but what is it that drives Luther's enormous confidence? We have a minute to the break. I think it, early on, it's the sense that the gospel, the good news revealed by God in Christ was under threat, and, and he thought he had to do whatever it took to salvage that from the hands of the Antichrist. And, and I, but I think over the course of time, he did see all these radicals. He did see those who were everyone around, around him were claiming this mantle. And really at the end of his life, uh, Luther ends in a remarkable way. I mean, he says, he, he, he says uh, Lord, now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace. Amen. He said the traditional prayer, which many medieval Christians said when they were about to die, into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. And, and at the very end, he does affirm what he has preached, but in a, in a real spirit of, of humility that is quite remarkable. I'll be right back with Matthew Gaetano, who is just speaking, Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College, when we continue on the Hillsdale Dialogue here on the Hugh Hewitt Show. 34 minutes after the hour, America, it's Hugh Hewitt in the Hillsdale Dialogue, talking about this epic figure, Martin Luther, with Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College, his colleague, Professor Matthew Gaetano, his specialist in Renaissance Reformation, Counter-Reformation. All of the Hillsdale Dialogues available at HughForHillsdale.com. All of the online courses, including the Western Civilization course, which is magnificent and which includes a lecture on, on this subject much more integrated than my dialogue is by uh, uh, Professor Gaetano, available at hillsdale.edu. Okay, I have to deal with the anti-Semitism, and I have to do that because we're in the shadow of it just this month. Three Jewish teenagers, one of whom was also an American citizen, captured and killed uh, uh, the most recent explosion of violence the, the, that rages on, 
And it's because of Jew hatred, Jew hatred, which is, you know, all around the state of Israel and is deep in our history. And a lot of people, Matthew Gaetano, I'll start with you on this, say Luther has a heavy hand in this, that he 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 put it into the marrow of the German bone and, and that it's in his writings. Is it true? Is that charge justified? This is a very difficult question. I, I think, I mean, I think it's important to recognize and, you know, as, as I'm, I'm a great admirer of the Middle Ages and medieval and medieval Christendom, as well as as some of these signal moments in the Reformation. But, you know, that a certain really sad attitude towards the Jewish people, you know, as those who killed Christ, as theocides, you know, or deicides, I should say, those who killed God, right, in Christ, that that attitude is is not new, certainly, with Luther. Now, Luther was hot about a lot of things. And as much as I've been, you know, trying to show how he understood himself from the outside, many did see himself, see him as, as arrogant, as, as, as filled with fury. Even Melanchthon, his, his great friend and student at his funeral, at Luther's funeral oration, uh, at his funeral said, Melanchthon said that, you know, Luther had, was at times a little bit too hot-headed. So even with with his you know corpse lying lying in the tomb, or lying in 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 the in, in the uh, coffin, he he's Melanchthon is willing to say something like that. But so so he said things very forcefully, and and about the Jews, he did say some really uh, really terrible things. But this is not completely new. But we also have to distinguish this well, from the Catholic you know, modern... churches. The Catholic Church is as guilty of anti-Semitism as the Lutheran Church as well, and I, and 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 has uh, publicly repented of it. And it's a modern blessing that we know the disease and and uh, can uh, identify it and I cure think that's it. Right. But but nevertheless, I I, I didn't want to pass over because my Jewish friends are always quick to tell me this that Luther right. uh, put this into the German spirit, and I don't know if it's fair or not. And I'm not a scholar, and I really haven't spent much time. But Larry Arn, I'm sure you've heard it before, but. It's uh, it's something that I think is almost obligatory to raise, at least for the purposes of putting on the table and noting. Yeah, that it, you know, the Christianity. So here's my little opinion: Christianity changed the way human beings relate to their government, as well as the way they relate to God. And there was a temptation in it to use the old way, and the old way was God was the source of the law in each city. And so this anti-Semitism thing is it's partly that we have to build a polity in which everyone agrees and, and is faithful and is compelled because their souls and their salvation depends on it. And so one can see why the Jews would be a problem if you think that way. And the richer strain and the true strain of Christianity, in my opinion, was discovered by the founders of America, especially prominently, and that was, Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. And no man comes to, faith, to, to God except through faith, a Lutheran teaching, right? And so it doesn't do any good to castigate the people who don't believe in Christ. He himself prevented violence against the very people who arrested him. And so it, it, it looks to me like that's wrong. And you could read Luther's life because it decentralized authority in the church as being a step away from that. But the thing about the Jews in him is not good. That's, and, Go ahead, and a I, minute to the break. Uh, and Matthew. I think just one of the reasons that Luther 
uh, was particularly angry at, at the Jews along with you know the Pope and, and many others uh, was that he really believed that when he proclaimed this true gospel in a way that he thought it was obscured in the centuries before that even the Jews would sort of flock to this this rearticulation of the gospel again in the last days as I've been saying and when he didn't see that happen he was deeply disappointed when we come back from break we'll spend our last segment talking about how you might go best about approaching Luther if you are not yourself steeped in Lutheran teaching uh, whether it's table talk or whether it's the small catechism or whatever it is I'll ask Matthew Gaetano and Dr. Larry Arn how one would tackle Luther if you wanted to go deeper or perhaps a best biography of him even Stay tuned to the Hillsdale Dialogue. It's here on The Hugh Hewitt Show. 44 minutes after the hour, America on the Hillsdale Dialogue. Special two-hour Hillsdale Dialogue this week on Martin Luther with Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College, his colleague, Professor Matthew Gaetano. At the college uh, less than a month ago, Eric McTaxis was your commencement speaker, and he probably was because he wrote a very important book, uh, a couple of years back, titled simply Bonhoeffer, A Life. Uh, Bonhoeffer himself, a Lutheran pastor, uh, who was all that was great about Luther and Lutheranism. Uh, And so I thought I'd I'd ask you, uh, Matthew Gaetano, how would someone go about accessing Luther if they're not Lutheran? You sent me on Christian Liberty to read, and and to the Christian nobility of the German nation, I think is important. The small catechism is sort of his, his concise Lutheranism. But how would you encourage them to understand it? I, I think you've covered a lot of the the great treatises, the you know, the three great treatises of 1520 uh, on on Christian liberty to the German nobility, and then the Babylonian captivity the captivity of the church. But you know this is hard material, and except for Christian liberty, it's very polemical. Uh, I think you really see Luther in his greatness, though this is difficult material. Um, in his commentary on Galatians, uh, written in 1535. It's, it's really a brilliant, brilliant work, and you see Luther's theology on display all the time. It's polemical at times because it's Martin Luther, but you really see him engaging with you know, the Word of God, which, which was so, you know, Scripture alone, which was so important to Martin Luther. Uh, I would also recommend the biography of Luther by a man named Heiko Obermann. Oh, that's easy to spell. Right. <laughs> O-B-E-R-M-A-N. Okay. And it's Luther, man between God and the devil. And wow. I, it's a really remarkable work. It's not a just, you know, year by year, month by month kind of account. It really makes a case for this, what, what I've, a lot of what I've been saying, Luther, who understands himself not as, you know, building some new modern world. Tell me the title again. The last days. Luther, man between God and the devil. Okay. And Oberman, I can remember that. So, so tell me, Larry Arn, why do you think Eric McTaxis's Bonhoeffer resonated so well? It's a, he's yes, he's a martyr. He's a martyr of the Nazis. He's a Lutheran. But I mean, it's seventy years ago. Why does this become and remain a bestseller? The author of whom is invited to a place like Hillsdale to address your graduates on an important day. Well, uh, Eric's account of why it's so important is he prayed a lot about it, <laughs> but. Uh, yeah, Bonhoeffer is an inspiring story, and and uh, he, you know, if you read it, here's what you'll learn. Here's a young man who comes within inches of surviving the Nazis, having give, lived for, uh, you know, 15 years under imminent threat of destruction from them, and he's got a beautiful woman, and he's going to marry her, and he and and at the last minute, two weeks before the war is over, 
the Gestapo catches him and hangs him. And every account we have of his comportment throughout this time, especially once he was arrested, is that he was serene and faithful. And it's just hard to read about anybody so clear-headed and so self-possessed and so obviously moved by faith in all he did. And, and I would ask uh, uh, Matthew, and so very deeply Lutheran, right? That whatever it is that, that Bonhoeffer had, he got because of Luther. That's right. Or it's, Jesus, it's, of course, but Luther. That's right. And of you know, a lot of this you know, is rooted in the teachings of Jesus and St. Paul. But you know, Luther, towards his, his dying day, you know, really found this one verse of Scripture deeply meaningful to him. You know, if God be for us, who can be against us? And how is God for us but in, you know, God humbling himself in the manger? He loved Christmas at his mother's breast and on the cross. So this is what, what Luther's all about. And you see this in Kierkegaard and you see this in Bonhoeffer, that sense of God for us, for me. And, uh, you know, Bonhoeffer's a remarkable guy. And just w- one quick point on that is that, you know, he t- took a tour of America and really brought this Lutheran understanding of Christianity you know, as part of a real critique of what he saw in American Christianity. He called American Christianity Protestantism without the Reformation. Huh. Right? That you know, it was all about you know, getting rid of superstition and purifying worship and, and so on, but it didn't have, in, in Bonhoeffer's view, a, American Christianity didn't have a strong enough sense of, of the church, of the church as a community of the faithful, and of the way in which it's all about fundamentally, you know, in his view, you know, the proclamation of the gospel and this flinging yourself on the mercy of Christ and for him as a Lutheran, and this is so important to Luther, in the sacraments, right, in the real presence of Christ in communion. So all of this he saw as uh, a way in which Lutheran way of conceive, a Lutheran way of conceiving of Christianity could enrich American Christianity in general. Now, I'm curious if, if you saw in Benedict the Sixteenth, the retired pope, um, an almost admission, and a German, uh, as German as German could be, an admission that, hey, Lutherans, I, the, the church got it. it, it absorbed much of what Luther had to say, let's come gather around now and go back to back as Christians. Uh, because I, I always thought of him as almost Lutheran uh, when he would write about Paul and things like that, as opposed to being uh, like John Paul the Great, much more deeply Roman. Yeah, I, I really think that uh, there, there's a way in which the Counter-Reformation, and we can't make that monolithic either, but there were ways in which Roman Catholics put up the, put up the, the bastions and became defensive and really emphasized the very points where Catholics and Protestants disagreed rather than realizing that, you know, at a certain, you know, at that if you're a Christian, you, of course, affirm what St. Paul says, that we are justified by faith apart from works, and that has to mean something. And I think Benedict XVI and, and others in this ecumenical movement, which sometimes kind of goes off the rails, but the idea that there are some really significant uh, problems in this world, and, and Christians have a great deal in common, and, and, and so much in the 16th century, all of this apocalyptic, apocalypticism, uh, war, uh, conflict, mistrust, that we really need to examine the issues in a much more careful way and, and just realize all of the things and all of the ways in which, you know, the, the real significant uh, disagreements were, were uh, surrounded by all sorts of misunderstandings and uh, caricatures of one's opponent's position. And Dr. Arne, uh, 30 seconds, you mentioned earlier C.S. Lewis. He was really the great, uh, the great 
bridge between all of this, but it is mere Christianity work. Yeah, and I think that's my position on most of these questions is dominated by that kind of thinking. I think, you know, I grew up in a Protestant church in the South. Uh, I go to a liturgical church today. It looks to me like there's Christianity in both of them. Larry Arn and uh, so much Matthew Gaetano. Thank you to both of you. Hillsdale Dialogues at Hugh for Hillsdale.com. Don't miss next week. Stay tuned.